everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Today we're going to talk about the Leesville murders. These murders took place in the 1980s and 1990s in and around Leesville, Louisiana. Leesville is a city in Vernon Parish, Louisiana. Fun fact, Louisiana is the only state in the U.S. that has parishes instead of counties. Louisiana was officially Roman Catholic under both France and Spain's rule. The boundaries dividing the territories generally coincided with church parishes. So when we use parish in this episode, it means the same thing as county. Leesville is about an hour west of Alexandria, Louisiana, and is near Fort Polk. We're going to start off talking about 21-year-old Karen Eads Hill, who was originally from Albany, Illinois. She moved to Louisiana due to her husband, a sergeant in the Army, being stationed at Fort Polk. On November 21, 1988, at 4.20 a.m., police received a call from a customer at the local Circle K convenience store. The young woman stated that the clerk behind the counter was missing. She couldn't find anyone at the store. The store was open, but there was no one there. Police are immediately dispatched to the scene and notice that the cash register was wide open with no bills in it. Detectives found car keys and a woman's purse sitting on the counter with personal belongings and identification cards inside of the purse. The purse belonged to Karen Hill, an employee at the store. The store did not have any security cameras, and detectives could find no evidence to explain why Karen would have willingly left the store during her overnight shift. There were also no signs of a struggle inside of the store. Karen's best friend, Tammy Browning, was about to give birth, and when Karen got off of work that morning, she was supposed to go to Tammy's home to take care of Tammy's other children while Tammy delivered her new baby. Tammy stopped by the store that morning to drop off her keys, but was stopped by a sheriff's deputy who informed her that Karen wasn't there. No one was in the store and not to enter the store. Tammy was confused as she had just spoken to Karen. In fact, Tammy spent most of the night on the phone with Karen during her shift. Karen's shift started at 11 p.m., and according to Tammy, Karen called her at 11.45 p.m., and they spoke until about 3.40 a.m., Karen was talking Tammy through her labor pains, and Karen would just set the phone on the counter when she had a customer that she needed to check out. Tammy was stunned that in the time between hanging up the phone with Karen and arriving at the Circle K, Karen had just vanished. Tammy said Karen was never nervous working alone overnight and always felt safe. The Circle K was on the entrance road to Fort Polk, the Army base where Karen's 24-year-old husband, James Hill, was stationed. According to Karen's friend Tammy, because Leesville is so small, with a population of about 3,000 people, and was mostly soldiers, there was a sense of security there. Tammy then drove to Karen's house and woke up her husband James with the news of Karen's disappearance. James jumped out of bed and drove to the Circle K. He was stunned to see her car still in the lot. James last saw his wife at about 10 p.m. the night she went missing, just before she started her shift. Per James... Karen was not scheduled to work that night, but was covering the shift for one of her co-workers. This part really got to me. Karen wasn't even supposed to be working that night. I can't help but wonder if Karen would still be alive today had she not picked up that shift for her co-worker. Like, if I were that co-worker, I'd probably feel terrible knowing that she covered my shift for me. 
and she's the one who ended up getting killed when it probably would have been me. Right, like it could have been me. Like the feeling of guilt. Right. But at the same time being thankful, it's probably like a terrible mix of emotions that I probably never want to feel. Right, just like I talked about the story about my boss having that interaction with Derek Todd Lee in episode one, um, you know, she had that whole, oh, it could have been me feeling when she noticed that the guy on the news that was a serial killer was, in fact, the person that she had an interaction with at the grocery store a couple years ago. I mean, that's got to be completely terrifying. Just to realize how close you were to death, to being a murder victim. If Karen wasn't the actual target and it was just random, maybe she'd still be here today had she not picked up that shift. And I often wonder this exact thing about a lot of true crime cases, not necessarily just this one. You know, wrong time, wrong place kind of thing. Police then set up roadblocks and started a desperate search to find Karen Hill. Just hours after the sun came up, a hunter called police and reported that he had found a woman tied to a tree. The woman was deceased. The tree was less than 10 miles from Circle K, where Karen had been working and was presumably abducted from. Karen was bound with a boot lace made out of cotton, both wrists facing the tree, with a strap between her hands. Karen was fully dressed and her shoes were still on. The detective on the scene could tell Karen had been shot and could see the exit wound to the back of her head. It was evident from the evidence on the tree that Karen was standing up when she was shot. Blood was also found on the tree. Karen had been shot in her left eye with a 22 caliber handgun. Karen was looking at the weapon when it was fired into her face. I can't imagine that being the last thing I ever see and just dying that way. Right, that has to be a horrible way to go, to know that you're about to die and you're powerless to do anything to stop it. It was later determined that Karen had also been raped. About 12 to 15 feet from the tree, detectives located a 22 caliber shell casing. Per investigators, the weapon would have ejected to that general area so it was consistent with where Karen was shot. Detectives also found fresh tire tracks in the dirt. The ground was wet and it left detectives a perfect tire print to cast. Analysts sent the tire impressions to the FBI crime lab for analysis. Tammy, Karen's best friend I mentioned earlier, had just given birth to a baby girl when she saw on the news that her best friend's body had been found. At that moment, Tammy and her husband decided to make Karen a part of their family forever and name their baby girl after Karen. Okay, full disclosure, I cried when I heard about this on the episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn that I watched as research. Legit cried in the middle of a coffee shop. No shame, because that was so heartbreaking, but also heartwarming at the same time. I hope as baby Karen grew up, her parents told her all about her namesake and how amazing of a woman she was. This is totally the kind of best friend level that we're on. James was faced with a tough task. He had to call Karen's mother to inform her that her daughter had been murdered. That, even just thinking about that, is horrible. I don't even want to think about having to call my mother-in-law to let her know that her son was murdered. Jessie McWilliams was 1,000 miles away in Illinois, getting ready for Thanksgiving when she got the crushing news that her daughter had been murdered. But back to Karen's husband, James. Of course, he was the first suspect, which isn't very surprising. When someone is murdered, the spouse or significant other, if there is one, is usually suspect number one. 
For example, the CDC analyzed the murders of women in 18 states from 2003 to 2014, finding a total of 10,018 deaths. Of those, 55% were intimate partner violence related, meaning they occurred at the hands of a former or current partner or the partner's family or friends. In 93% of those cases, the culprit was a current or former romantic partner. Those are just some statistics that I looked up that I found really interesting, and it kind of explained to me why the partner's always the first person. Or the spouse or partner is always the first person police look at. I always joke with my husband that if I ever get murdered, they're going to look at him first. It's always the husband. It's always the husband. I'm pretty sure there's a book or a podcast or something or a movie named that. But anyway... When police searched Karen and James's home, they found three weapons, two shotguns and a high-powered rifle, none of which were twenty-two caliber. While James was being questioned, Karen's mother insisted that she be there. James asked her if it was because she thought he did this, to which his mother-in-law replied, quote, No, I'm here because I know you didn't do this, end quote. That speaks volumes because I know that if I was in the mother's position, I would be pointing the finger at everybody trying to figure out who did it. Especially starting with your son-in-law. Right. James took a polygraph test, which he passed, and testing confirmed that his blood type was not a match to the biological evidence that police collected during Karen's autopsy. At this point, James was ruled out as a suspect. I totally understand that the victim's spouse is always the first suspect, especially based on the statistics I just read, but that has got to be so hard to be the person detectives are investigating. You can't even properly grieve the loss of your spouse because you're being looked at as a suspect, which I know is a necessary evil. I just can't imagine having to go through the process of being interviewed and interrogated as a suspect while trying to grieve the loss of the most important person in your life. That's got to be pretty rough. Right. But now, detectives had an even harder task at hand. If Karen's husband didn't murder her, who did? Detectives still had very little to go on. Then the FBI crime lab gave detectives an important lead about the tire impressions found near the crime scene. The model of the tires was a Maritech 4, which comes standard on 87 and 88 model General Motors products. This new information still left detectives with thousands of possible vehicles in the Leesville, Fort Polk area. Detectives were convinced that the suspect was someone familiar with the military community surrounding Fort Polk. They feared that it was only a matter of time before the killer struck again. Unfortunately, police wouldn't have to wait very long to get a report of another missing woman. Six months after Karen's murder, a call came into the sheriff's department. 23-year-old Pamela Miller had vanished. Pamela had been living with her sister Annette in Leesville. About 4 a.m. on May 30, 1989, Annette got a phone call from a guy Pamela had been dating. He stated that Pamela's car was blocking his gate the windows were down and her purse was on the front seat, but he couldn't find Pam. The man told Annette that he had no plans to see Pamela that night. Annette drove to the scene and found evidence that Pam had met with foul play. You could see Pam's high heel prints from her car to the gate. Then you saw a man's sized tennis shoe footprints all around her car. Annette stated it looked like someone had grabbed Pam. When investigators viewed the scene, they agreed with Annette's assumption. Pam was last believed to be in the area of Highway 117 and Gill Hunt Road in Leesville at around 11.30 p.m. on May 29th. She may have also been seen just prior to this at Lebo's on Highway 28 using the payphone. Like Karen Hill, 
Pamela Miller was also at a convenience store the last time anyone had seen her. One of the Leesville locals had seen her at the store, watched her get in her car, and drive away. Detectives wondered if someone had followed Pam from the convenience store to the remote location where her car was found. Detectives, who had also investigated Karen's case, thought that Karen and Pam's cases may have been connected. About six months later, and almost a year to the day after Karen Hill was abducted, Pamela's skeletal remains were discovered in a shallow grave by a hunter in a remote location on Highway 118, just inside the boundaries of Sabine Parish on November 24, 1989. Miller's remains were found not far from where Hill's body was found, tied to a tree inside the boundaries of Fort Polk's training area. It is said that the area where Pamela was located was near an area used by the military station at Fort Polk for training exercises. Police positively identified Pamela's body via dental records, but it was a photograph from the crime scene that convinced Pam's sister, Annette, that the victim was, in fact, her sister. Annette recognized a broken earring lying on the ground near Pam's remains because she and Pam had bought the same set of earrings. The lead detective on the case, Kenny Williams, had already become convinced that Karen and Pamela were murdered by the same person when police were called about another missing young woman. This time, a teenager with long blonde hair had vanished. Tammy Call, 15 years old, went missing on February 20, 1990, after she left school to skip class with a friend. The two friends were planning on meeting in a wooded area behind their school. However, that never happened. Tammy's backpack was later found under a bridge nearby. The investigation went cold until seven years later, skeletal remains were found in the woods near Fort Polk that police believed was Tammy. Tammy's remains were positively identified when the DNA of the bones matched the DNA of blood samples drawn from her parents. That had to be gut-wrenching. For one, I hate giving blood. And I know at this point she had been missing for a while, and having to sit there and give blood at the same time wanting it to be her but not wanting it to be her right because they want closure but they don't want this you know brutal incident to have happened to their daughter right and it had been seven years by that point and you know without a body you tend to keep hope you hope that maybe she's out there somewhere maybe she'll show up one day but you know when the DNA evidence comes back, then that's it. You know that's your daughter. And that had to just been, waiting for those results to come back, had to just been horrible for them. Police were unable to determine cause of death, and there was little to no physical evidence. When her skeletal remains were also found on the outskirts of Fort Polk, detectives feared there was a serial killer on the loose. All three women were young, attractive, and similar in appearance from a distance. All three women were last seen in or around convenience stores. All three women were dumped on the boundary line of a military reservation. To detectives, there were too many similarities to think that the same person didn't murder all of these women. With little evidence to follow or leads to go on, detectives had to wait for what they feared was the inevitable, the killer's next victim. We know that there are only two things that stop a serial killer. He dies or something happens to make him stop. Now we're going to talk about a few potential cases that may be connected to the person that police believe murdered all three of the women we previously discovered. Um, They're likely not connected to him, but they are part of the reopened cold cases by the Vernon Parish Sheriff's Office, which we will discuss later in this episode. First, 
we're going to talk about Bambi Luann Brantley. 25-year-old Bambi was originally from Memphis, Tennessee, but she moved to Louisiana with her brother after a breakup. She was described by her family as a loving person and a sheltered girl who was working as a car salesperson in an auto dealership at the time of her disappearance. On the night of October 22, 1986, Bambi walked to a convenience store in Leesville, purchased a drink, and used the payphone outside the store to call the restaurant where her brother Roddy was, but couldn't reach him, so she left a message, quote, If you see my brother, tell him to come home, end quote. She never returned. Bambi and Roddy, then 38, shared a home in a trailer park about one-tenth of a mile away from the store. Authorities believe Bambi walked back home after leaving the store because the fountain drink she bought was found inside. She has not been heard from again and her body has never been found. Is the reason why Bambi wanted her brother home connected to her disappearance? Honestly, we may never know. That is unless the sheriff's office receives new tips after reopening these other cases. The next person we're going to talk about, potential victim, is Mary Darlene Howard. 15-year-old Darlene was reported missing on April 15, 1980 in Leesville after her grandmother sent her to mail a letter. Darlene's body was located by a hunter in Sandy Hill, part of Fort Polk South, 12 days later on April 27, 1980. Darlene was stabbed multiple times and she suffered defensive wounds to her arms, leading investigators to believe that she fought for her life. Police believed that Darlene was possibly sexually assaulted but it could not be confirmed due to the state of the decomposition. In Darlene's case, police believe she could have known her killer. However, as of this recording, Darlene's case is still unsolved. The person who was convicted of murdering Karen Hill, who we will talk about in a second, could not be considered a suspect in Darlene Howard's murder since he was only 10 years old when it happened. And according to investigators, he was stationed at Fort Polk from December 1987 through June 1990, which means that he was not at Fort Polk at the time of Bambi's disappearance in October of 1986. Even though these cases are likely not related to the person we're about to discuss, as police believe the rest of the women to be, I still wanted to mention them because, like I said, they're part of the reopened cold cases by the Vernon Parish Sheriff's Office. And even though these women are not directly linked to the person we're about to discuss, their murders are still unsolved. And they still deserve justice, just like the rest of the women in this episode. So now, like I said, we're going to talk about the person who was actually convicted of Karen Hill's murder. Seven years after Karen Hill's gruesome murder, her case was still unsolved. And just before Christmas in 1995, Karen's mother got a call from a stranger that would reignite the investigation. The caller told Karen's mother, Jessie, Quote, my name is Angel. I know who killed your daughter. End quote. What a message. <laughs> right. I, I that's got to be insane. I can't even can't even fathom that. Like, thanks for getting straight to the point, but can you soften the blow just a tad? Right. right. Angel knew critical details about Karen's case, such as she had been abducted, tied to a tree, and shot in the left eye. And, she, and he told Jesse that no mother should have to hear about that happening to a child. And at this point, since Karen's case was still unsolved, I don't think those kind of details had been released. Right. So, 
when he said all those details specifically about her being shot in the left eye, her mom knew that this guy was for real. He was a legit. Yeah, he was legitimate, and he knew what he was talking about. And he wasn't just, you know, playing some cruel prank on her. Angel promised Jesse that he would give police a lead that would finally bring her killer to justice, but he never gave Jesse the killer's name. Angel did, however, keep his promise and contacted authorities in Leesville with chilling details about Karen's murder. Detectives sat there stunned as they listened to his story. Angel told investigators that he had been in the military stationed at Fort Polk and the soldiers had a reunion recently and the roommate of a soldier named Samuel Galbraith told Angel that he had always fantasized about abducting a woman then raping and killing her to see what it felt like. Um, <laughs> what kind of absolute animal says they want to kidnap, rape, and murder someone to see what it feels like? That is so disturbing to me. This guy was a total monster. Exactly. Like, you know, I consider myself to be a pretty patriotic person. And when I think of, of an American soldier, this is not the type of person that comes to mind. Not at all. Not at all. And I'm not trying to bash the military, but you'd be surprised at just how many murderers and serial killers have military background. David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, and Jeffrey Dahmer, just to name a couple. Per Angel, on the morning Karen Hill's body was discovered, Galbraith made a confession to his roommate about following through on his fantasy. He told his roommate that he kidnapped a woman out of a store, raped her, tied her to a tree, and shot her. Detective Marvin Hilton picked up the case and spoke with Galbraith's former roommate. He was stunned when the roommate confirmed what Angel told investigators. The roommate stated that he had talked to another friend, and the two of them decided that unless they were asked, they were not saying anything. Let me stop right here to say, what in the world is wrong with these people? What kind of human being can know about this kind of heinous crime and not call the police? This just completely blows my mind. I do not understand this at all. I know you don't know how you'd act in a situation unless you're in it, but I would like to think if someone confessed to me they kidnapped, raped, and murdered someone, my first instinct would be to call the authorities. But maybe not everyone feels this way. I'm just not sure. You know, people say, you know, I, you don't know how somebody will act in a situation, but y'all better not tell me nothing because I'm ratting. Yes, but I feel the same way. Don't tell me you murdered somebody because my first call is going to be to the police. I'm going to be like, ooh, I'm telling. <laughs> Who's she telling? <laughs> okay, let me stop. Anyway, back to the story. Investigators quickly compiled all of the information they could find on Samuel Galbraith. They discovered that he was stationed at Fort Polk in the military during the time that Karen Hill was abducted and murdered. Vehicle registration records showed that at the time of Karen's murder, the then 19-year-old Galbraith owned a 1987 GMC SUV. The factory issued tires on the GMC SUV were consistent with the tracks discovered in the dirt near Karen's body. Detectives tracked down Galbraith in Texas and asked him to come to a nearby police station for an interview. He did not even question detectives as to why they wanted to talk to him. Sketch. Way sketch. He knew. Galbraith remained stoic when detectives explained that they were investigating the 1988 murder of Karen Hill, a young woman abducted from a Leesville convenience store. 
Galbraith never admitted to knowing Karen Hill and showed little concern, even after detectives revealed that his roommate at Fort Polk told them about his confession. Galbraith stated that he did not kill anyone. Detectives asked for a sample of Galbraith's blood, and he stated that he had nothing to hide, but he didn't want to give them his blood sample at that time. Detectives then dropped a bombshell. They didn't actually need Galbraith's permission. Police produced a warrant for his DNA to compare to the biological evidence obtained from the crime scene. Got <laughs> This has got to be one of the best feelings as a detective, having a suspect tell you they don't want to voluntarily provide a DNA sample, then being able to slap a warrant on the table and be like, ha, doesn't matter, don't need your permission, sucker, and just taking their DNA anyway. Man, if I was a detective, I'd know that would be my favorite part. <laughs> right? Per investigators, at that moment, all the blood drained from the previously stoic Galbraith's face. <laughs> the blood they were supposed to take. <laughs> Stop. Testing of the former soldier's DNA confirmed what detectives already suspected. Galbraith's DNA was on Karen Hill's clothing. Leesville, Louisiana detectives finally had their man. On April 23, 1997, Samuel Galbraith was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Karen Hill, but entered a plea deal just days before his trial was set to begin for manslaughter and attempted aggravated rape, which carried a sentence of 71 years. How do you go from first-degree murder to manslaughter and attempted aggravated rape? Attempted aggravated rape. Not rape. Attempted. Attempt to rape somebody. Not sure. Not really sure. Anybody wants to explain that to us, feel free to hit us up. I really, really, really despise plea bargains, but I guess it saved the, the family a lot of turmoil as far as the trial goes. Right. After his conviction, detectives questioned Galbraith about the other unsolved murders with similarities to Karen's. Ultimately, he decided not to speak with investigators, which is his right. He wouldn't admit it, but he also didn't deny it. There is no DNA in the cases of Pamela, Bambi, and Tammy, so without someone coming forward, the chance of police solving their murders is very slim. Karen's husband, James, was outraged to find out that a soldier who was stationed at Fort Polk with him had done this to his wife. I can't can't even imagine, because, you know, people in the military, it's such a close-knit... Yeah, they have that camaraderie, that brotherhood or sisterhood, and to think, like, your family, because that's that's your family, like, betrayed you. Did this to your wife. And your wife that was 21 years old and had so much life ahead of her, and apparently they had planned to have kids and, you know, spend the rest of their lives together, and her life was just tragically cut so short. Completely senseless. like For nothing. For nothing. Galbraith was scheduled to be released on parole in April of 2017. However, thankfully, his release was rescinded after protests from Hill's family and public outcry. On November 3, 2016, the Louisiana Parole Board stunned Karen's family when they ordered Galbraith to be released from prison. As I said before, his release date was April 23, 2017. But on April 21st, 2017, just two days away from being released for good behavior, the Board of Pardons Committee on Parole notified Galbraith that his parole agreement was being rescinded by Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards after pleas from Karen's family and public outcry. 
The Louisiana Department of Corrections said Galbraith will have to return to the state parole board and ask again for early release because Karen Hill's mother, Jesse McWilliams, was not properly notified of Galbraith's parole hearing the November prior. The parole hearing notification letter for the originally scheduled October hearing was mailed to an address in Albany, New York, rather than her address in Albany, Illinois. Galbraith then filed a lawsuit against the state of Louisiana. Oh, here we go. Right. His legal complaint states that he became a quote-unquote political football in the debates and discussions surrounding the criminal justice reforms during the 2017 session of the Louisiana legislature. He also complained that he became a pawn in the debates over whether persons convicted of violent offenses should be parole eligible. Um, That's going to be a negative. That's going to be a hard no from me. Galbraith was not given an opportunity to challenge rescission of his parole or to challenge false information. He says that he was only given notice that his parole could be taken away, quote, only if he engaged in misconduct while in custody, end quote. Upon pleading guilty to manslaughter and aggravated rape and being sentenced to 71 years in prison, Galbraith was eligible for parole under Louisiana Revised Statute 15, 574.4, which was in effect at the time of his crime. His lawsuit states, The law allows Galbraith to be eligible for parole after serving 20 years of his sentence and reaching the age of 45. This law was amended in 1995 to restrict it for people who were convicted of a crime of violence, but because it was in place when the crime was committed and because Galbraith was a quote-unquote model prisoner, early parole was granted. As we said, the law is different now. Current law requires defendants convicted of violent crimes that are not life in prison to serve 75% of their sentences before they become parole eligible, which would mean that Galbraith would have to serve 53.25 years before he could even be eligible for parole. After serving this amount of time, Galbraith would be around 80 years old before he was even parole eligible. Okay, wait a minute. If Galbraith maybe would have turned himself in within the seven years that her murder was unsolved. Maybe his trial could have been before the law was amended and there would have been no gray area. Like, he wants someone to throw him a bone, but hello, you murdered someone and now you expect sympathy. Yeah, right. Galbraith is currently housed at Elaine Hunt Correctional Facility in Iberville Parish, Louisiana. Some people say Iberville Parish, but I say Iberville. I say Iberville which isn't very far from where we are currently recording this episode. In February of 2018, the Vernon Parish Sheriff's Office formed a new task force in hopes of advancing some of the area's oldest homicide cases. The cold case investigation team is comprised of five officers who are already active in the Sheriff's Office. Five homicide cases that occurred between 1980 and 1990 have been reopened, including the cases that we have already discussed today. Officers are working on these cases on a volunteer basis in addition to their regular workloads, which is amazing to me. These detectives are really amazing for doing this on top of their regular jobs. Each officer has devoted themselves to going through each case individually and looking over every bit of evidence and documentation in the hopes of solving these cases and bringing some closure to the families at last. The Vernon Parish Sheriff Sam Kraft said that he believes every case the team is focused on has a true chance of being solved, most importantly because now the team has science on its side. 
According to Chief Rhonda Jordan, a member of the task force, one case the team is most excited about involves Pamela Miller of Leesville, which we've already discussed. To Jordan and many other detectives, Miller's case is eerily similar to the disappearance and murder of Karen Hill. At the time that Miller's remains were found, Jordan said that there was little forensics could determine from the limited amount of evidence recovered at the scene. Now, however, she believes that there is evidence that could help to establish Miller's cause of death and possibly provide a link to her killer. Per Jordan, quote, in the 80s, there was very little that could be gained from DNA, but now we see a lot of opportunity from the physical items of evidence that we still have from that case. We do still believe Galbraith could be responsible for her death, and this evidence could be the key to connecting him or discrediting him with her death, end quote. I'm not really sure what kind of evidence they might have, or biological or DNA evidence, because as far as I know, they weren't able to recover anything. But from what she's saying, it sounds like maybe they will be able to recover something from these items and yeah, that they the haven't time, gotten yeah, yet. Maybe at the time the science wasn't good enough to pull anything to from get those anything items. And now they're like retesting everything. Right. Because, like I said, from everything I've read, they weren't able to pull anything. But that could change in, since it's an open investigation. They might just be holding stuff really close to the chest yeah. until they can. Like, science is a thing of beauty, and I would never. Never try to mess with it. Right. In addition to science advancements, Kraft said that the team is also at an advantage because of today's use of social media. Since first posting of the reopening of the oldest of the cold cases, the disappearance and death of Darlene Howard, Sheriff Kraft said that his team has already been given fresh leads. Sheriff Kraft said investigators have conducted interviews with individuals who have since come forward, and he said... He's hopeful this new information could lead them to serving justice. Per Sheriff Kraft, quote, These women in these cases deserve to have justice served, and the individuals who did this to them deserve to pay for what they did to them. We will not forget about these women, and we will not stop searching for their killers, end quote. I truly hope these investigators find some promising leads that can potentially solve these cases and finally bring a little bit of closure to the families, even if it has been over 30 years for most of them. If you have any information that could lead investigators to solving any of these cases, we urge you to call Detective Jerry Twyman or Detective Rhonda Jordan with the Vernon Parish Sheriff's Office at 337 238 7248. Even if you have information but think it could be insignificant, please call anyway. The information you have may be more important than you realize, and even if it isn't important, let the police be the judge of that. That's the case of the Leesville murders. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to our Facebook page and leave us a review, or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform and follow us on social media. Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.